0: 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 6 through 16 Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continually form our hearts around the gospel. Holy Spirit, thank you for uniting this church, the churches in Kalispell, the churches around the world. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move among the preaching that is heard around the world, from pulpits, from basements, scared of authorities breaking them up from cathedrals, from outdoor churches that meet under a tree somewhere, gathering to hear your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would unite us, you would form us, you would bind us, you would convict us, you would grow us. In your name, amen. So this morning, where are we at in 1 Corinthians? Well, last week we saw how the Spirit of God uses the message of Christ and Him crucified in a supernatural way to unite His church. This week, we'll look at how the Spirit uses the message of the cross to actually grow His church. Now, I want to clarify here. um, I don't mean just grow in size. Uh, I mean grow in depth. In size and in depth, I should say. You see, uh, it's by the Spirit's work that we grow in our understanding of the cross And it's by the Spirit's work that he brings people to understand the meaning of the cross. But this morning, we're mainly going to talk about spiritual maturity, growing wider, bigger, deeper, more mature in our knowledge and understanding of the cross. Now, you'll remember the context that Paul is speaking in. He's writing uh, to a fractured church, divided uh, by allegiances or preferences to different preachers or teachers or personalities. Uh, But it was not just the personality problem that Paul was concerned with. He wanted to address... Uh, the propensity of individuals in Corinth to follow preachers they believed gave them greater insight than other believers. You see, in other words, it, it, there was a spiritual elitism that they sought, and they thought that they were getting that from this preacher or that preacher. You see, it, it wasn't that they were all just super competitive to know facts. It wasn't that they just wanted to get the best grade in the class. It was that their hearts had... Pride that manifested itself in achievements. So while it may seem silly that they took on pride for having more factoids in their minds or more experiences listening to lectures, the real problem was that they used those things to elevate their status among the brothers. You see, the heart of the matter here was pride. And this fracture was only the beginning. There were a number of issues that Paul goes on to address here in 1 Corinthians, if you read the letter. Uh, But it should be said that whenever a fabric of a community starts to tear, there's always subsequent issues that follow. But that fabric of the community usually has to do with pride. You know, I I was talking to Lloyd about this, and he brought up an interesting point, and I'll relay it to you. (laughs) Um, He said, you know, we have a lot of accountability groups when it comes to sexual purity. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, mechanisms and groups that, that talk about certain things. Um, we don't really have accountability groups for pride, do we? And not often. And yet that, and this is, this is Lloyd, and I think he's right. He said, actually, that's worse in a community of God. That tears apart the fabric of community first, and then comes the moral issues. Spiritual pride. And that's what's happening here. Paul's addressing this. He's saying, look, the heart of the vision that's going on here is pride. It's spiritual pride. And you think by getting this or having that, it elevates you. Now, Paul's reminding them who they are in Christ and the Spirit's power to use the message of the cross to unite them. Now, there's an indicative imperative relationship going on here. With Paul's writing and and there always is when Paul writes something he always reminds the church first of what's going well Brothers and sisters. I greet you right and he encourages the church And then he reminds them of the gospel because jesus did this because christ went to the cross and he was He lived the life. We couldn't live and he 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 died the death and received the punishment We should have received and resurrected because of that Now therefore go do these things But the imperative always springs from the indicative because this is what jesus did now go do these things. And that's what's happening here. This is Paul in the indicative phase still. He's going to move into the imperative phase in the next couple chapters. So Paul's antidote to the problem of division is a more profound understanding of the cross. As one Christian author put it, he said, we never move on from the cross of Christ, only into a more profound understanding of it. So that's the framework that we're going to, move, that we're going to work with here. Now, Paul begins to lay out the solution by stating that there's two categories of people, only two. There's not uh, elitists or non-elitists. There's really only two categories that God looks at, the natural man and the spiritual man. Now, it's important that we clarify something because this passage uh, in particular has actually uh, uh, been used or just to use to justify a sort of spiritual elitism or a second blessing, gifting, spiritual gifting are oftentimes outright heresy. And of course, it's ironic because that's exactly what Paul's trying to address is this spiritual elitism. That's the problem he's trying to address. And yet this passage is used often to promote spiritual elitism. You see, Paul is not saying here that the church has grown through people only through people who have some secret insight. And that secret insight is not only given to some. He's also not saying that only spiritual mature people have... Insight into God. Historically, some spiritual sects have used these verses to support their unique and always heretical interpretation of the Bible. That's not what Paul's saying. What is he saying? First, let's look at the natural man. There's two categories natural man and spiritual man. Who is the natural man? The natural man is anyone who has not been made alive by the Spirit of God. Now, Paul points out a few characteristics. We see this in verse 6 that the natural man can only be shaped and is only shaped by the present. Uh, the wisdom of the present age or the wisdom of the rulers of the present age, meaning he can only understand what is here and now. He does not understand history and time belong to God. He doesn't acknowledge that. And all the events in history are held together by God, who is outside of time. The natural man doesn't recognize that. William Barclay, and I got this from Craig Blumberg's commentary, a wonderful commentary in on 1 Corinthians. William Barclay, who is a pastor in, in Scotland, of course you know, um, he said this. He lives. This is the this is the natural man. He lives as if there is nothing beyond the physical life, and there was nothing as great as his material needs. That's what the natural man believes. There's nothing beyond physical life. There's nothing as great as his material le- needs. The physical, ma- the natural man. They act as if there is nothing more important than their greatest urge. They don't understand the importance of chastity. They rank. Amassing material, uh, amassing material needs as far more important than g- generosity. The natural man, they do not understand the things of heaven or God. They do not think of heavenly thoughts. We think of heavenly thoughts. That's not what the natural man does. They think only of this world, what they can get, their greatest urge. He wrote that many years ago, and I think it hasn't changed since. And it's important to understand this because Paul says that the rulers of the present age will pass away because they live by this knowledge. Well, what does that mean? It could mean that the Romans or the Jews who rejected Christ, uh, they were going to pass away. And I think that is true. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. But I think it applies to anybody who lives in this natural state, all of us. Think of how much we know now more than what uh, they knew back then. I'll give you an example. i we, uh, we, I went to seminary in Philadelphia, and I loved in Philadelphia where you could go to all the historical sites, and you can see stuff, and you would see what they did, like they put wood in their teeth to make, I don't know, because they thought that was a good thing. Um, but they also, this is what they did, in, in, in terms of medical technology, they would put leeches on you. You guys know about this? You guys have heard about this, right? They put leeches on you, and, and, and the idea was that it would draw out something that was in your blood or something that was in your body, and they thought that it worked. Um, And, of course, now we look at that and we snicker, and we're like, I can't believe how silly they were, right? Because the wisdom, the greatest wisdom of their day, the scientific wisdom they had, it passes away. So as the case with all of wisdom, with all of knowledge that's not based on God. Think of how much of our wisdom will look silly to our grandkids. Think of how much technology will change things. It's all passing away. But the natural man, that's all they have. That's the greatest hope they have is that we'll somehow, someday figure it out. And Paul says, look, all that's going to pass away. And there's no humility among the natural man to understand that God actually is the master of history. All things work together for his good. He gives us all scientific knowledge and wisdom and truth. He's the one that made the world, who keeps it in order. That's not what the natural man understands. Also, Paul reminds his audience that the wisdom of the age isn't really true wisdom, true insight into the world. Because if humanity was really able to understand God from their own intuition or from their own advancements in technology, then they would, un- they would understand that Jesus was the Messiah and they wouldn't have crucified him. That's the argument he makes here. If the powerful people of their day, using the standards of wisdom they held, were really wise then they would have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul actually argues, look, this has always been the case. Who, with who Everyone who lives in the natural state, from the beginning of time, they do not understand who God is and the mystery that he has given us. And he quotes Isaiah. He says, look, even Isaiah knew way back then, he knew that salvation, that the salvation of God was hidden, was a hidden mystery to those who didn't love God. How many demonstrations of God's power in the Old Testament were evident... To the nations, they, saw every, they, saw, they, saw, they heard about the waters parsing. They heard about the ten plagues. They saw them. They experienced them. They experienced these supernatural acts of God, and yet they continually denied him. Paul says in Romans 1 that people worship the creation rather than the creator. John says in chapter 1 of his gospel that people saw the light, but they loved the darkness. You see, the Old Testament saints had faith in something they couldn't see themselves but trusted in the promise of God nevertheless. And that was revealed to them. That was given to them. There was a mystery about how God was going to bring his people back into communion with themselves. And they didn't fully understood it. But then that promise was made full or it was made true or it was made manifest in Jesus Christ. And still people didn't understand it. The mystery was hidden from them, and so they crucified him. Paul has in mind again here the people he was talking to who at one time lived as foreigners who were brought into the family of God. He has in mind the Roman magistrates who crucified Christ, the Jewish leaders who couldn't understand that Jesus was the Messiah, and anybody who else who remains in this category. He has you in mind here. You are in your natural state, which is death. Now, there's another important description of mat- natural man here. The person who has not been made alive by the Spirit has no insight to God, no true insight to God. So they have to make up a certain religion. They have to make up thoughts about God. Look right at your He says, no one comprehends the thoughts of God. And later, people do not accept the things of God. They do not understand them. Uh, what's he getting at here? There's been much debate about this. How much can somebody even know about true things um, without... Uh, acknowledging God as God. And there's been much debate about this in our Reformed heritage. And and I'm just going to give you the very gist of the argument here. I'm not going to go into all the um, nuances of it. But um, all parties would agree um, that God has revealed himself in a general way. Uh, Like the psalmist reminds us in the 19th Psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God. And all parties would say that the specific revelation of God uh, is his word that was given to us to understand salvation. But when it comes to the extent that the natural man can actually be certain of facts himself, that's where the debate usually comes in. Can he be certain of facts himself apart from the knowledge of God? Some say that an unbeliever or a natural man can know a fact, the sky is blue, along with the Christian because of God's common grace to all humanity. Others would say that while both the Christian and the non-Christian can see that the sky is blue, the Christian can know for certain... Because he knows there is an order to the universe founded on the character of God. The non-Christian can only borrow the knowledge that the sky is blue or any facts about the world. He cannot be so certain. Van Til called it a borrowed capital. Uh, Van Til actually gives us, uh, he calls this the natural antithesis between a natural man and spiritual man. And you might think this is important and maybe, maybe you're right. Um, but let me give it to you another way. Van Til actually says... Look, uh, the natural man is like a little girl. He saw this little girl in Philadelphia. They were on the, um, it's not a subway. What's it called? I'm forgetting. It doesn't matter. Um, they were on the train, and, um, and he saw this little girl sitting on her, his father's lap, her father's lap. And she was whining, and she was throwing a fit, and she was, she was uh, you know, she slapped him in the face. Um, and he's like, that's like the natural man who sits there. and uh, and, and throws a fit while the the Father of the universe, the the Heavenly Father, is holding them and trying to comfort them and sustains them and pays for their ticket and feeds them food. That's like what the natural man is. They don't understand. They're not made aware. There is a mystery to what God is doing, to what God has done, to God himself. I think that works. The natural man is a self-centered child can't see the father on a practical level there is just a fundamental difference between the way the natural man sees the world and everything in it and the spiritual man the fundamental difference and so the natural man is left to his own intuitions and his own descriptions of who god might be or what the world is all about or what the chief end of man really is and in our day and age the answer is you make that up yourself The answers are blowing in the wind, my friends. They're always changing. For those of you who don't know, that was Bob Dylan. Some of you, some of of us don't know. What about the spiritual man? Paul just wrote to his audience that it was the simple declaration of Jesus crucified as He was, and the Spirit's power in using this in the lives of the Christians there at Corinth. While this message was simple, it's not simplistic. That's what he means when he says we actually do impart wisdom to the mature or to those who have been made alive by the Spirit. This is the second category of man, who you've been made alive by the Spirit. It's also important to note here that he takes the buzzwords of of that culture, like mature, secret, and hidden wisdom, spiritual truths, and he uses them in a different way the locals meant. The locals meant to take, they they meant that as a status symbol, uh, as an achievement, Paul says, whoever had a new secret insight, I mean, this is, uh, Paul actually says, I'm going to use these words to say that everybody who has the Spirit of God does have secret insight, is mature. They have an understanding of the message of the cross, and they grow in that understanding, the profound nature of that understanding of the message of the cross. But that applies to every believer, every single one. That's his goal in preaching and writing to the church, by the way, is to help the spiritual man, to help the church Understand spiritual truths, as only they are able, because God has revealed to them who He loves. I think of language here for a second. Growing up in Germany, I this, growing up in Germany, I would go to. Uh, I, I was living in Augsburg, right outside of Augsburg, and uh, my friend uh, whose name was Morgan. And anybody who knows German, uh, Morgan in German means what? Morning, right? You guys are all German speakers, good. Um, so I, I go hang out with my friend Morgan, and we're going and, and we're playing with our German friends. And we don't understand anything that they're saying. And they don't really understand anything that we're saying. And we, we would play, we would create these wars on this construction site because there's big mounds of mud, and we would, you know, you know, play Nazis and Americans. It was very politically correct. <laughs> it was the 80s. Um <laughs> And uh, <laughs> and I'll never forget, like, we couldn't understand what they said, right? Like, it didn't make any sense. But between Morgan and I, it made total sense. We could communicate to each other because we were speaking the same language. That's like what the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, that's what the Holy Spirit does to us. It helps us understand things of God that we otherwise wouldn't understand. You ever been in a foreign country and you can't understand anything anybody is saying you can't understand the signs you can't understand the menu and you order something you're like what did i order i don't even know but then you talk to somebody who speaks english and all of a sudden it's like oh my goodness there's a breath of fresh air i can understand you you can understand me you can understand i don't want that weird thing i ordered or whatever the case is you know that's the case with you and i there's a spiritual reality to being a spiritual man that we can help et- each other understand truths about god now he also creates a very logical argument here. He says, "Look," he says, he writes that no one understands the thoughts of God except uh, thoughts of a person, except for that person. And in the same manner, no one understands the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now we know in Romans eight twenty seven, uh, he tells us that the same Spirit who searches the mind of God also searches the mind of man. The, Romans eight twenty seven says, "Look, the, the Spirit searches our hearts," and he tells us. He, he intercedes for us to God. He actually prays on our behalf. He prays the things that we should be praying to God, right? That's what the Spirit does. That's what the Spirit does for us to God. In the, in the same way or in, or in like manner, the Spirit of God brings the thoughts and the knowledge of God to us. And he gives them to us. And he forms us around them. And he unites us with those things. And we're able to talk to each other about those things because we understand the language. We understand what each other means. The Spirit illuminates our hearts to the realities of our sin. Christ's righteousness on our behalf, our adoption as children of God, our justification, our sanctification, and the hope of our glorification. It is the Spirit of God who moves our souls into a deeper appreciation, a deeper application of the cross of Christ. It's not a learned skill. It's not a mantra. It's not a magic technique. It's not a really great worship experience. It's the spirit of God himself. Now, it's vital for Paul to establish this as he addresses his audience because he needs them to change their way of thinking. He said, look, you've been given the spirit of God, not the spirit of the world. So we can't use worldly categories anymore. And that's true for us as well. We can't rely on the natural man's judgment of what is right or wrong, good or beautiful, But God's common grace, by God's common grace, the natural man can agree with Christians as to what is good. But we must must use the Spirit working in and through and by God's word to judge what is good. Because we have the mind of Christ. Now, what does that look like in our lives? Uh, There's a couple points of application. First, Uh, You have to be certain that you have been made alive by the Spirit. How do you know? How do you know that you're a spiritual man and not a natural man? I have no illusions to believe that every single person in this room is a spiritual man. I don't know. I don't know your thoughts, but you know your thoughts. How do you know you're a spiritual man, person? (laughs) You know because Jesus dying on the cross for your sin makes sense to you. You internalize that. You believe, even if at time it wavers, that you believe that he needed to die on the cross for you. It doesn't just apply to somebody else. You don't just hope it applies to your kid or to your parent or to your husband or your wife. You know that you need it. That's the sign of a spiritual man. Second, your interest in God grows over time. You've been given the spirit of God and therefore your conscience of God's presence in your life. We've been all given the same spirit that means we all have access to who God is, his thoughts. Christians are going to be wanted to are going to want to be reminded of spiritual truths. Even if it hurts. You know, I don't like going to the doctor and hearing that my A1C number for my type 2 diabetes is up. I don't like hearing that because then I have to eat better and exercise more, you know? And Pete Highbore is like, it's up, you got to bring it down. I'm like, okay, all right. But I I need to hear it, even though I don't want to hear it. Spiritual people are going to want to hear spiritual truth, even when it hurts and when they have to change something about their life. At some level, they're going to want to do that. They're going to want to pray, even if they don't know what to pray for. They're going to want to love others, even if at times it's really not fun. Christians are going to want to help others, and even at times be humbled enough to be helped by others? Because they have the mind of Christ. And while all this happens over time, there's going to be one thing that Christians never leave, but always are drawn back to. They always go back. They always go back to what? They always go back to the cross of Christ. One author put it like this. This is Tim Keller. Immature Christians find God useful. Mature Christians find God beautiful. There's a couple other points of application, and I have some more time, so I'll drone on. Uh, The third point of application is this. uh, If we've been given access to God by His Spirit, if we've all been given the same Spirit, if we all have the mind of Christ, if we've all been made alive and matured by the same Spirit, then let's stop believing that we as individuals have all the answers for all the problems the church is facing. Craig Blomberg writes this point in his commentary, and and I've experienced it in my own heart as much as I've experienced it in in ministry, is that it's always easy for us as individuals to believe, you know what we really need to do, especially in youth ministry, I hear this a lot. What you really need to do is you need to teach apologetics. You know what you really need to do? You need to uh, do this curriculum, or you need to double down on foreign missions, or you need to double down on social activism. That's what we really need to do. I know how to fix this problem. Let me go in there and try to fix it. If we've been all given the spirit of God, then he is working through all of us. And we individually may not have all the answers. It's very easy to be prideful in our own spiritual knowledge, to think that we have it all. It's the same pride that, uh, that uh, oftentimes as husbands we can look at our wives and think, you don't have the answer to this. You're just an emotional female. I'll figure it out. It's the same pride that uh, women look at their husbands and roll their eyes and say, I can't believe this guy would have anything to say. He hasn't been to church and he hasn't been paying attention. It's the same spiritual pride that younger people, you look at older people and you think there's no way they can have any kind of answer. They don't know what it's like. They've never grown up with this or that. Holy Spirit's been given to them too. Older people. It's the same spiritual pride that says younger people can't teach me anything. They don't know if they would only listen to me. Spiritual pride and division all over the place. It's the individualism, the spiritual pride that wants us to draw, that wants to draw us away from the community of the cross and the unity of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we have all received the same access to the insight of God. Will we use this wisdom, found in God and the Word, to search our hearts and to humble ourselves before Him? Will we use that, or will we rely on our national natural categories? We have been given the same Spirit. One last point of reference especially when it comes to spiritual elitism and the things that we have in this world. I think it's very easy for the western church and for our church in America. And this is a danger for us. It's very easy because we have so much access to so many things, books, different interpretations of the Bible. I mean, we have we have podcasts, everything. We have it's so easy for us in the western church to look at the church in other places and say we've figured we've got it figured out. And I wonder if spiritual pride creeps up in our elitism because we have a lot we have there's more masters of divinities. More pastors have advanced degrees in America. I think 80% of the world's MDivs are in North America. I think it's very dangerous for us. We have to be careful. We have to use the word of God and pray to him and ask us to show us. Ask the, the spirit of God to show us what we can learn from our brothers and sisters in other areas. Just because they don't have as much education, technology, or, or access to things doesn't mean that the spirit of God is not working in them as well. So let me ask you, where in your heart can this apply? Because the grace of God says that we've been given the same Spirit, and that same Spirit will show us the inside of God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray for Faith Covenant Church this morning that if there is any spiritual pride, any elitism in our hearts, that we would come to you and we confess it. We trust you. Father, I pray that we'd be humble enough to listen to our brothers and sisters, to listen to the people across the political aisle, across the ideological aisle, across the, the race aisle, across the gender aisle, be humble enough to recognize that they have a spirit, the same spirit that we have. I pray that we'd be discerning on what is true and what is not true, what is good and what is not good. God, you you are not just useful, but the beauty of the cross calls us together and unites us under one spirit, one church, one Lord. Amen.